This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones. And today I'm coming to you, I'm in the middle of the Colloquium on Violence and Religion Conference at Purdue University. You know, the last thing I did at Purdue University was football camp when I was in the fifth grade and certain I would be a Hall of Fame defensive end who played at the Chicago, for the Chicago Bears and had like three Super Bowl rings. It did not work out that way, but I think it worked out even better. Uh, and uh, proof of that is I'm at the Colloquium on Violence Conference at Purdue, and next week, I'm going to be in Washington, D.C. for Senator, or actually Ambassador, Sam Brownback's conference that he is hosting on religious liberty. And if you don't subscribe to this show, you need to subscribe. And while you're subscribing, give me five stars, because next week, I'm bringing my podcaster pro, setting up a bunch of mics. I'm going to have a plate of malasadas and some chairs, and I'm going. they're going to be the greatest heroes in the world from all over the world coming to this conference. Warriors for freedom, warriors for religious liberty, warriors against tyranny from Mongolia, from Hong Kong, from every corner of the planet, and they're going to be on the show. They're going to come for the malasada. I'm going to have, hey, sit down. Here's the headphones. Here's a mic, and I'm going to interview some of my heroes, and you're going to want to listen to these shows. Um, but today... Today, we are interviewing the great Stephen Harriet, cultural critic, writer, one of my favorite people, and we're going to be talking about the number one movie in America today, Tomorrow War, The Tomorrow War, and I watched it, and I said, I got to talk to Stephen about this on the air, and really, I'm just going to get to the interview, but The Tomorrow War is about, are you willing to do what you need to do today? for your posterity tomorrow? Are you willing to fight for your posterity? And I think so. That's why you listen to the Jason Jones Show. We are, this audience, we are addled. We are burdened with concern for our posterity. And this is a really wide-ranging and interesting conversation on this new movie, the number one movie in America, The Tomorrow War, directed by Chris McKay, starring... The wonderful Chris Pratt, just a great human being. Written by Zach Dean, who I don't know much about, but I want to interview the guy. Because only a wonderful, beautiful, thoughtful, empathetic human being could have written The Tomorrow War. So let's just get on with the show. This episode is being brought to you by Movie to Movement. Uh, go to movietomovement.com and check out all of our films. It is also brought to If you want to... Do something practical to serve your posterity tomorrow. A simple thing you can do is go to thegreatcampaign.org, become a monthly donor, just do $5 a month so you get on our list and you get to hear about all of our campaigns and you are on the team. And also, this episode is being brought to you by MyPillow. You know Mike Lindell. He is addled by thoughts of, are we all getting the best sleep? And so he made the best pillow in the world, which you already own. But I've been telling you to get those Giza Dream sheets. They're made with a cotton that comes only from a place in Israel called Giza. They're magnificent sheets. 
And I can tell you, I especially appreciate them in this hot, hot Texas heat. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, and use the code Jones. And there's a big special this month on the Giza Dream Sheets. So that's what you need to do. So let's get on with the interview with the wonderful, the great Stephen Harriet on the Tomorrow War to save, to save, what does he say? He says, the best line in the movie is, if I have to save the world to save my daughter, I'll save the world. So let's save the world on the Jason Jones Show. <laughs> Aloha, Stephen Harriet. Welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Jason. Well, I'm having you on to provide cover for myself. Yeah. It might not work. It, it, it may work, but uh, you, you know why you're on here today. We're going to discuss a movie on Amazon. Tomorrow's yeah. War. Is that it? Tomorrow's War? Yeah, the, the Tomorrow War. Come on, get it right. Do you want to start over? Or? <laughs> no, I don't. Well, as you know, I've been battling the flu all week, so I'm sick. Yeah. So my brain's not all there. Delta, right? The, it's the Delta. It's the Epsilon variant, and uh, yeah. whatever. I hope so. I hope it so is for- the Epsilon variant. I hope I am person one of the – and I hope all people in the world who get the Epsilon variant, it's because of me, and it would only be because my wife is Chinese and I ate her soup. There you go. Well, she makes this special uh, jellyfish melon soup, which is amazing. But there's something about the jellyfish and the melon and Wuhan. And I am person one. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wouldn't eat jellyfish melon soup. Yes, anyway. you would. Yes, so, I mean, you I would. Think I'm sa- nah, I you think would. I'm safe. I'm With Coca-Cola? Safe. Come on. You'd eat shark fin soup no, if I'll I do- took you to certain places. I just lost 10% <laughs> no, I, of my audience. How did, you can't joke about shark fin I, soup. And I say to you, stop the Asian hate is what I say. Yeah, stop the Asian hate. And if God didn't want us to eat shark fin, he wouldn't have made them out of meat. If there's any animal we should be allowed to eat, it should be the shark. Because they eat us. At least a cow has yeah, never actually, done anything to anyone. They're, they're the stuff of like, yeah, movie villain material, these sharks. They're ugly and mean. Yeah. Before we get on to talk about the Tomorrow War, which I want everyone to watch, you know, I don't want you to get Amazon Prime, but I want you to watch it, so I don't know how that's going to work. Maybe you go to your friend's house. I don't know, like that Seinfeld episode when the Christian asks Elaine, who is Jewish, to steal the neighbor's newspaper so they could check the movies, and she's like, why don't you steal it? He's like, I'm a Christian. Um, So I don't know how, I don't know. He's, He's like, you're going to hell already. I'm a Christian, and I can't, I can't steal. But you can, Elaine. Anyways, it's a sign. Well, my, my general my general principle, by the way, is you abide by your core principles unless it becomes inconvenient. That's generally the code I live by. That's the spirit of the age, my friend. That is the spirit <laughs> of the age. Um, so, okay. So here's the deal. Oh, before we got to that, I want to tell you about I saw a shark last week. Oh, no. Did you eat it? No, in its own environment. I was kayaking. Uh, down the Suwannee River, and we, I mean, it was intense. One day we did 18 miles. That's not easy, friends. And, but it was all worth this. I came around a horseshoe, 
and you don't see the horizon the whole time you're in the river, right? You just don't see the horizon because you're in a river and you just see trees in the river mm -hmm. and you don't see beyond the river. And, um, so it turned, it, there was this horseshoe and there were a lot of horseshoes. And, uh, we, we, I did this, we did this horseshoe and we came right out and all of a sudden it was just like seagrass and a few towering palm trees about a mile off. Uh, and you could see the horizon for the first time. And you could see where the Suwannee River smashed into the ocean. And it was beautiful. And as I kayaked right to where the ocean and the river met, the very first thing I see is a shark fin come up and out of the water. Couldn't have been more beautiful and more perfect. And I nice. didn't eat it. I didn't make soup of it. But that was just a way of me to fit that story in because we were talking about sharks and shark fins. Did you have... You have your kid. Did you have your kids with you? you Not that day. No, my friend oh, okay. who listens to this podcast and he's a big supporter. I don't want to insult <laughs> him. He's a maniac. And he's like 60 years old and he's like the kayak champion of the planet Earth. And he's like, I'm like, yeah, I don't think we should uh, do this rest of this trip with our kids. Maybe we should just, you know, scout it out. And uh, so we, and it was good. It would have been too hard. It was very hot that day and it was. It's different kayak, you know, when the river and the ocean meet, um, it gets to be a bit more challenging. And I think my kids had just had enough. They were they just wiped. Mm -hmm. So it was just me and my friend. And um, yeah, he wanted to keep going. This guy's in his 60s. He's like, let's go to that island. It's only six miles away. I was like, you know, you can go to that island. <laughs> and I'm going to paddle on into the shade and look for alligators. And that's what I did. And then he made it like mm -hmm. an hour out. And he realized... Yeah, probably not. And he came back. And meanwhile, I was nice. just drinking water under a tree looking for alligators in the swamps. You made of the right Florida. choice. I made the total right choice. <laughs> no, I think you're saying, I'm like, look, no. Nah, I'm good. It is a hot day out here. And I'm pasty skinned. And the sun, you know, nah, I wasn't going to, after kayaking all that way, I wasn't about to do a three, uh, 12 miles in the open ocean. I was, I was good. I was good. Yeah. I wouldn't even want it to be towed 12 miles at that point <laughs> by, you know, a boat. Yeah, well, you got to know, you got to know your, you know, the ancient principles, know thyself and know thy melanin content and thy skin and stay the heck away from the sun beyond a certain limit because uh, it can get nasty. I remember when I was a kid, I used to go out in the sun a little too long and I come back, you know, those big, those big blisters that would form. They're like basically like packets of water. Oh, I have <laughs> the them. No, I still, they've popped. Thing. No, I had these huge blisters. They were amazing. Oh my God. Yeah, no, I had the huge blisters. Not from the sun, just from the paddle. Ah, oh, right, right. But uh, no, I was, I, I lathered on the sunscreen because my melanin content is nil. And I lived in Hawaii for 31 years, which means we all know, we all know my, I'm going to get the Cyclops in two episodes in a row. We talked about the Cyclops yesterday. I'm going to talk about the Cyclops today. I didn't need to go see the Cyclops to know how I'm going to die. <laughs> you know what I mean? I know. I probably know. Skin cancer is going to be what gets me. There you go. There so, you go. So um, I love this movie, and I wanted to talk about it, but I thought three things. One, people are going to be mad that I watched something on Amazon. Two, they're going to think I'm childish that I liked a movie called The Tomorrow's War. And uh, so I needed someone to come on and confirm my taste in this film. Yeah. There's someone that's respected yeah, well, as a culture critic, Stephen Harriet. I thought you had the coolest culture podcast on, but because you lack fortitude and discipline, you've stopped it. Um, yet, you yeah. know, you're still respected. 
Um, although I lost some respect <laughs> for you for quitting. Um, don't worry. It'll, it'll come back. It'll come back one of these days. Don't come back yeah, now because no, you'll be a competitor of mine. I don't even want you back now. Stay away because you're really oh, good at this. Oh, that's the, oh, no, that's the plan. I will, I will be the sun to your, to your pasty skin in the, in the landscape <laughs> you know, of podcasting. In the podcasting world. Yeah, you will just melt. So, um, so no, I asked but, you to watch it and tell us what you thought, and then I yeah. want to tell you what I thought. Yeah. So I watched it. Here's what I thought. Um, okay, the Tomorrow War, here's the premise, is about a man who is uh, struggling to make it in his choice uh, of profession. He's a scientist. He wants to go to this job at this prestigious institution. His whole life led up to this moment where he's going to land the job and say, I made it. I am everything I always dreamed of being. And at the very beginning of the movie, in the middle of a Christmas party, he walks out on his family to take this call. And he thinks that this is the final interview. They're going to tell me I'm in. And his wife and kids are kind of just, well, you're not supposed to miss the game. We're watching the World Cup, which is our family thing. But he walks out, takes the call, and they say, actually, you found a better candidate. You don't get the, the job. And so he is absolutely heartbroken. Goes inside, kind of tries to, you know, suck it up and be there for his family. Just then, they're watching the World Cup. All the world's eyes are on the World Cup. And in the middle of the field, a massive time portal opens up. And soldiers from the year 2051 come out and say, we are engaged in the final world war. The entire human race is about to be annihilated. And we need you to send us uh, reinforcements from your time. And here's how you do it. You know, use this portal and stuff. So right away, the whole world changes. All, uh, all the world's militaries send their best troops off to the future. Uh, they die at a rate of like 70 percent. So there you know, becomes this, this draft worldwide of ordinary citizens. They're all getting plunged into the meat grinder through this portal. Most of them are dying as well. Soon enough, our main character, Chris Pratt, is also um, uh, drafted and has to go to the future. But the premise right away, family man, dejected about his failures as a professional, has to go to the future to save future generations. And as I said to you, Jason, after I watched the movie, uh, yeah, that's actually a documentary. <laughs> In other words, I loved your true. response. No, I texted you, I think. And I said, what did you think? And you're like, it's an amazing documentary. And uh, that's what I thought. Yeah. I said, this is brilliant. By the way, I love when people are clever and like Amazon yeah. doesn't know what they made. They have no clue. They have no idea, <laughs> yeah, you right. know, what this movie was about. If they did, they, there's just no way it would have gotten through. I think it's a very, I hate to sound like a progressive in 1936, like a Marxist. It's a very revolutionary film. It was a very revolutionary a, film. Well, it was a subversive film. It was very subversive. It was, it was though, but it, but it was, right? I mean, it's a very subversive film. It's for a generation right now, by the way so so go it's fun being christians right now and i know chris pratt has got to be getting a kick out of it because it's like being bolsheviks in like the 1950s it's really fun andrew breitbart <laughs> always used to say you know conservatives are that have always been because andrew loved punk rock like all of my conversations with andrew breitbart were about punk rock music and 80s rock and 80s ska which I like Scott. I was never an 80s punk, but he thought I was. I have no clue why. And that's what we would talk about. I would just listen. And he would talk a lot about 80s. But he'd say, oh, we're, the real, we're the real punk rock. So it was a very subversive film. And this is, I don't know, you, you can decide. 
Uh, I because I like I don't know what I want to do if I want to give away the plot spoilers, but but I will say this. Um, if you think it's necessary, I don't know if it's necessary, but I will say this. Maybe it is kind of necessary. It, it is subversive in this way. We are a generation that is obsessed with ourselves and completely thoughtless to our posterity. Bill Gates thinks he's going to live. Literally, Bill Gates literally thinks he's going to live forever. He said so through technology. So when Bill Gates talks about, like, we need population control and we need to all eat cricket meat um, for the good of our posterity, what Bill Gates means is, you know, because I'm going to live to be 190 and I don't need you riffraff around consuming resources. So to Bill Gates, he literally is his posterity, uh, as weird as that is. So in a generation that's thoughtless to its posterity, this film is subversive and it radically focuses the audience's attention on our posterity's need for us today to sacrifice for them. That's what the movie's about. Yep, and you know what? It did that in a lot of different ways. Obviously, the premise, I agree with you, is just downright clever because it does that. It literally just... and, And what I loved about it, by the way, is it does what you just said but it de-ideologizes it. What I mean by that is it's not a tract written from a conservative philosophical position saying you're mistaken progressives or average people or people, as you often say, enthralled by the spirit of the age, because in fact, the human person and da 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 through liberalism, blah, blah, blah. It gets rid of all of that stuff that's debatable and pro- turns into protracted argument or something like that. And it just says, look, here's Star Wars. We're going to run around and shoot things. There's bad guys that are going to kill you. Uh, you have to fight back. It makes it into a true story with all the classical elements of just good guys versus bad guys. Get out there, self-sacrifice. And I, and I love that because it's like, it was almost like listening to, I don't know, like an impassioned Barry Goldwater speech transformed into a story. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. And even the bad guys aren't bad. They're just yawn. Okay, there's heroes who are not perfect heroes that are struggling and scared. And, and there are just the young, the people who are afraid and they hid um, or they tried to support yeah. the draft or whatever. So it's not, it's not even like there's good guys and bad guys um, because there's this threat that transcends the human family, uh, which is, which we can say there's some type of alien creature, which to me could be just literally blowing up a pandemic. It's a pandemic of sorts, right? So it's imagine if the COVID virus, we're 14 feet tall and we had to fight that. So it could be any distant threat to the human family, whether it's uh, a microscopic uh, bacteria or um, artificial intelligence or some sort of alien creature that's oh, 14 feet tall. I, I, I might, I might, you might disagree with me, but I actually thought something more about the alien. Okay. Uh, so uniquely, in most alien movies, you have a, a sophisticated, usually um, psychic or technologically more advanced enemy invading our country or, or our sorry, our planet in an effort to dominate us, usually politically. Right? What was unique about this, I think fairly unique, is that wasn't happening at all. There was no intelligence in the alien. It was a sub-rational creature. And in fact, it was the personification, if of anything, of nothing other than appetite. Uh, Muri, one of the main characters, simply says at one point, they are hungry and we are food. 
that's her whole description of the entire motivating uh, element of the alien invaders. They, 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 and we, we find out, no, can we do spoilers? Yeah, what the heck? Spoiler alert. I think you need, most people are going to need spoilers anyways to, to kind of see what we're seeing. By the way, that is brilliant. So at the end of the day, it's a movie about we have to fight our own appetites. Those creatures are our so. appetites, which we need to get yeah. under control or our posterity are screwed. Correct. And, and what I love about it. See, is this is why I had you on, because I did not see that. And I think you're right. <laughs> well, no, and literally, I'm, I'm not kidding. I think I'm not reading into this too much. At the end, we find out, again, spoiler alert, that the alien creatures that, quote unquote, invaded are actually cattle. They're subrational animals that were sent to, as a, to clear a planet. They're genetically engineered by an alien race to just eat. There's totally subrest. They're cattle. So all of our entire tradition of Western thought, by the way, I, I, was, I, I said to my wife during the movie, I turned to her, I said, it's remarkable to me that these aliens are dog-like, canine in their basic movements, which was an interesting uh, animation choice and design choice. But in our tradition, what is the dog, right? Appetite, passion, the thing that needs to be reined in. And what I love seeing throughout the, the entire story that's played out the good guys, you said they're imperfect, they're not perfect heroes, I agree with that, but if anything marks them out as distinct, it's that they are diligent. We even have a montage of the two main characters pulling an all-nighter on boring work to defeat the enemy. That's our advantage as the human race, and it's uniquely, it's really important that that all-nighter took place between what? Father and daughter. It was about... I mean, that's the ultimate plot spoiler, right? Like, the guy that saves the world, I don't want to give it away too much, but he saves the world through his posterity. Through his posterity and in union with them. And they are are laboring. This is exactly... I mean, that's the thing. I turned to my wife and I said, look, you can quibble. There might be some artistic things that are lacking in this movie, but what it is saying is 100% true. It describes the human person accurately. And it describes the situation, the moral, the moral catastrophes and conundrums we face. It just describes them. It just said, this is the truth, truly. And I was like, this is, like I said to you, this is a documentary. This is actually what we face. This isn't even fantasy. So I thought it was really cool that way. Well, no, this is something, I mean, this is the, one of the reasons I started the show. It's why I write my books. It's why I make my movies. Even The Race to Save Our Century, I think that book is very clear. My first book was written and I wrote that book. I think I told you this before. I wrote that book for one reason. I want my posterity to know I love them and I thought of them. That's it. That's why I wrote that yeah. book. I want in 100 yeah. years a descendant of mine to pick that book up and go, oh, my gosh. I had a grandfather that, like, thought of me that he took him 16 years to write this book. Um, wow. And that's something. So that they would be yeah. thoughtful of their posterity. You know? So that's... Yeah. Because I am quite well aware of that our ancestors were thoughtful of, of us. They sacrificed for us. We are the first generation, yeah. maybe through technology, not that we're any better or worse than our ancestors. We like to think we're a lot better. Yeah. We love to think we're a lot better. We keep tearing down their statues because we're so much better than they are, these jerks. Um, you know, I don't think we're any better or worse. We're just addled by technology that, gives just throws well, gasoline on our appetites yeah that's the thing it throws gasoline on our appetites and you know we talk about work ethic right but ultimately what is work ethic it is 
uh, Plato talked about it as taming the dog, which is your passion, your appetite. And um, so you're, you're using your rational faculty. And what ultimately means is delaying your gratification, which is the opposite of getting likes and shares on Twitter. Delayed gratification. And what you're talking about and what this movie is about is what is a more prime example of delayed gratification than literally doing things for rewards that you yourself will never see, but your posterity will. Yeah. So this movie, That's I, very delayed. Did you do any? <laughs> did you do any research on the writer or on the team behind it? Uh, not not much. I, I I really like Chris Pratt, so I looked up a little on Pratt. Pratt. Pratt is great. Actually, J.K. Simmons, who stars as Pratt's father in this movie, um, I'm sure he's. I, I bet J.K. Simmons is something of a progressive. So I thought it was especially fun when, in an interview about the movie, somebody said, "What is it like to work with Chris Pratt?" And J.K. Simmons describes Chris Pratt as infuriatingly likable. <laughs> he doesn't want to like him, but he does. <laughs> I wish I had that. Great. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if the worst <laughs> thing someone could say about you is, you know, I, I listen to the Jason Jones show. The only problem is the guy is infuriatingly likable. I would love that. That would be the best. <laughs> it is the best. It's, it, it, it's, it's the, uh, you know, it's the sort of like, it's like, um, uh, you know, girls in middle school uh, reacting like to your teasing in just the right way where they're angry, but not really. It's perfect. <laughs> well, so the guy that wrote it, his name is Zach Dean. And, um, you know, he's, he's written, I've not watched anything else this guy's ever written. But if you go look at his face on IMDb, you just like his face. I'm going to have to research this guy. Maybe we'll get him on the show. The, the writer, you, just, you never, you ever just look at someone and you know by their face, like they got to be a good guy. <laughs> he, he looks like that. No, He's, I haven't. I I stopped. I stopped doing that after, uh, after break. You know, heartbreak after heartbreak. You know, when you find yeah, well, no. people that look like good people. You know? Well, I think. <laughs> no, I see his face. They were over forty. I just 40. looked up his face. I just looked up his face. That's okay, guys, face. look up You're Zach right. Dean and tell me if you just look at him and you're like, this is a. This is a kind, thoughtful, empathetic, soulful dude. Yeah, so this is the title of this episode. You should just say, people, look up Zach Dean's face. <laughs> <laughs> That'll get his attention, then he'll come on your show. Hi, I'm the guy <laughs> who thank you've all been looking at. Um, I'm the reason why your IMDb score went up two points. from its. He's already in the top 5,000. <laughs> okay, hold on. Where is he? My IMDb Pro expired, so I can't see his rating. Um, but he isn't a, t I mean, he's gotta be higher than the top 5,000. Um, well, this movie did terrifically well, broke records. Uh, Chris Pratt got like personal congratulations from Amazon. They were like, this is mind blowing. It was the, the most streamed movie in the world on its opening. So, well, you know what it is people, I'm taking this course at Indie Thinkers, which I need to get them on here. Cause it's really just, it's this blessing I'm taking a course on Rene Girard. This is a professor. All the students are exceptional. We have two hours of lecture time where we all meet on a Zoom call a week. And then the guy gives us a lecture every week. Um, and so we're going over Rene Girard. And I was kind of walking them through because a lot of them haven't read Girard's later work. I think a lot of people are scared away from Girard's later work because they kind of smell that it's going to be very Christian. And so they're like, yeah, I won't, yeah. I won't go there. 
But I don't think you understand Gerard um, unless you read, like, I See Satan Fall and After. Um, but, but my point is I was walking them through, look, Gerard says that scapegoating doesn't work anymore and that I really see what he's saying is all that we have left is violence or radical solidarity. And I think people are looking for radical self-sacrifice. And I think people really long for for sacrifice. They long to to oh, sacrifice. And that's what this film yeah, is really about, that. longing yes. to sacrifice for the other. And there's no more natural inclination to sacrifice for than our one's own posterity. That's, and by the way, it doesn't just talk about how to fulfill. Yeah, it talks not just about the desire to self-sacrifice, but it nails like being a bullseye, how to self-sacrifice because there is a wrong way and plenty of people do it. You can annihilate your own personal character for the something bigger than you, right? The, the, the popular causes of today can just swallow you up and you can feel selfless and you can sacrifice yourself. You can sacrifice a lot of things and a lot of progressives, for example, do for these like fleeting, you know, causes with a very short shelf life are not actually going to be fulfilling and this movie for me what sums up the right orientation for self-sacrifice was this line from Dan Forrester played by Chris Pratt main character uh, he says I'm not a hero I'm just trying to save my daughter and that means I have to save the world and god damn it I'm going to do it so do you know it was like a, it, it, that's my line. I've been saying that line for 30 yeah. years. If I have to save yeah. the world to save my family, I'll save the world. If I have to save the world to save my children. And so when I heard that, I was like, whoa. That means it is a common sentiment in the human family that I thought was unique to me. And when I heard that, I'm like, this is beautiful. Yeah, if I yeah. have to save the world to save my child, I will save the world. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And, and that's a unique, forgive me, because I am a Roman Catholic. I want to claim that sentiment as, as, as that of my faith. It's a very uniquely Christian. It's not good salesmanship to let them know that, though. We want people, I believe, I agree with you, but we don't want people to know that. So we shouldn't say that. We no, should we, want we them have, to sell the concept just, and not let them know it's a uniquely Catholic concept. Because our brand is not, yeah. we're not like, I, I, I always, <laughs> always say, this isn't a Catholic podcast, and someone texted me this week, a buddy, he's like, who's Calvinist. And I, I don't like to admit I have Calvinist friends. I do. But uh, he, he texted me and he said, <laughs> he, like, you don't think it's a Catholic podcast? Like, look at the titles of your last 10 shows, you know? Okay, it is. But we don't want people to know that, right? But it is a uniquely Catholic wait, idea. You're, wait, Jason, real, real quick. You're, you're a Roman Catholic? I'm a, I'm a Catholic. I didn't I'm know a that. Roman Catholic, yeah. I did, I did not know that. That's really interesting. What a coincidence. Me too. Yeah, okay. Um, so go on. So... Tell us how that's a, no, the no. thoughtfulness of saving the world for your posterity is a uniquely Catholic idea. Well, here's the thing. It's unique. Here's the, the, there are so many people out there. I know many of them who have that impulse you talk about, you know, that impulse to sacrifice themselves, to do something meaningful, uh, to give themselves to something greater than themselves. And it misfires so much. Another person who nails this problem, which is pandemic right now, is Jordan Peterson. You know, his whole line is, you know, uh, you know, clean your damn room, make your bed. You know, like you're basically take care of your own household before you go out there to try to. And that's the thing. 
we've talked about this before, you and I, about certain religious people that we know who will say what they're doing is they will find great insights, in fact, about how to put one's soul in order, how to put one's household in order. And they will completely skip applying it to themselves and take the social media prescribing it for the world around them and for their neighbors. They will apply to the body politic, the, the all-important ethics that were meant for their own hearts. And what that ends up being is coercive and abusive and, and, and preachy and off-putting. And it doesn't go anywhere. It's Meanwhile, disgusting. Yeah, it's by gross. The way, we're all repulsed yeah, by that. And their soul, yeah, and their own soul remains disordered. They never improve in character. They never find peace or fulfillment. And they end up just being, and what I've described right now is the essence of an ideologue. They become ideologues. And an ideologue is the opposite of a hero, in my view. The exact opposite. It's a person who gives himself to the public good, right, in a way that actually doesn't involve. This is a person who would never say, I don't care. If I have to save the world to save my daughter, I'll save the world. He would say, this is a person who would say the opposite. You know, if I... <laughs> You know, if I have to, I suppose if I have to be kind to my neighbor or my own family uh, in order to, uh, you know, as a part of my overall mission to save the world for PR purposes, when people are looking, I guess I might do that. But really, that's what I'm not interested or in. Or worse, I'm not interested in my, I yeah. have to have an abortion to cut down on carbon emissions. Uh, yep, yep. I'm going to sacrifice my <sighs> child to save the world. Yeah, that's that's gross, right? It's absolutely gross. No one would be attracted to that. But if Which, I, by the way, I remember you've done research on a lot of movies in your pro-life work. And I remember some 10 years ago, you used to point out like examples of pro-life witness in movies. And I looked through your list and I realized oh, there's a lot of these. So I started to look for them. And I realized that there is no. Uh, mention of abortion in any storytelling or film or TV that doesn't come across as pro-life because abortion is not presentable in true storytelling as anything other than horrific. Even Insider House Every Rules, I, which attend, intended to promote abortion, you're just like, it was eerie, it was uncanny and bizarre. Yeah, And uh, the whole story was off-putting, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I wonder, I mean, I, I really got to get this guy on. Um, but so that's like the whole thing right now. This is something I think we as conservatives, the show I did yesterday, I had a guy on because I had this epiphany. Oh, maybe we could, we could change gears. The reason why I want to talk to you about this movie is because I, it was that whole idea of to save our child, our children, we have to save the world. And I called you, or I don't know if you called me, but we talked on the 4th of July and I said, this has been amazing. We're at six flags and I, everyone was red, white, and blue from head to toe and then I saw this family, they had the declaration, the constitution on a shirt and that all the family was wearing patriotic clothing and the shirt had the constitution. And then it said, this, we will defend. And it was every member of the family had that shirt on. So, you know, the excitement, nice. you just don't accidentally buy a shirt like that off the rack for everyone. It's an exciting process. You ordered it. It, you you hoped it would come in time for Fourth of July because you knew you were going to Six Flags. It did. You were so excited. You put the shirts on. Here you are, your whole family. I'm looking at this family, 
and I am in awe. And I am just thanking God and saying, this is so beautiful that they love their place. They love their country. They feel at home there. They own it and they love it. Because by the way, they were Mexican family. And I'm like, this is so beautiful. But what made me begin to like, literally tears came down my eyes was when they all, what could only make that whole situation more beautiful? Did they sing? They all began to speak. They were speaking to each other in Spanish. Ah, and then I realized as I watched them that they were new immigrants. This is Texas. You could be Mexican and be here 200 years, right? I meet these families. (laughs) They're like, they get mad at you. And you're like, oh, when did your family come here? Uh, before your country came here, you know, they got a Texas accent. Uh, we came here before you all came here as a country. And, uh, so I thought this could be one of these great old Mexican families and here in Texas, no, no, no. They're first generation. They love this country. They love, love this constitution. And I thought, take that woke culture. You only get rich white kids that go to Jesuit high schools from affluent suburbs who are on TikTok all day. You're not getting this family. Then it dawned on me, oh, no, yeah. they will. They will because now they're in public schools. You don't have to pay to go to university anymore to get indoctrinated to hate your family, your country, your place. No, no. You can get that now in high school and junior high. And I'm like, they're about to rob this family of upward mobility. They're about to rob this family of the American dream. They're going to get to rob this family of pride of place. And, and they're going to rob them of feeling like they belong. They're going to tell them, well, this is a bracket. Remind me to tell you my epiphany I had thinking about this that day. They're going to rob them of belief that they can climb the ladder to success because they want to rob them of upward mobility. This is what they want. And then I realized we have an obligation to make sure that these families, these new immigrant families, working class families, single moms, that everyone has a great education. That's why yesterday's show was on classical education and how we can make sure everyone gets mm. a good education. But, um, mm. but that's what I realized. I cannot homeschool my children, which I do, with like literally on one wall the Magna Carta, on the other the Constitution, on the other the Declaration, on the other a prayer written by John Adams, on the other George Washington's The Unfinished Washington, that classical painting that used to hang up in every school. I can't teach my children uh, um, their faith and, their, and I can't teach them the, the great political traditions that they've inherited and think they'll be okay to save my family I have to save my country, right? This is where we are. There's just no way. There you go. The Benedict yeah, option right. is yep. a joke. We got to wait out. We got to wait out. And we have to, yep. and we have to do, and we must do this. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know what? It's a good, here's the good news. I totally agree with you. Here's the good news. What we have to offer is attractive. Be like that Mexican family. Put on those shirts. Go to Six Flags. You, so many people. And look, I live in the middle of Redneckville. I live in the middle of nowhere. I deliberately moved to the middle of nowhere. Um, and even in the middle of nowhere, small. Was that before or after you took Nancy Pelosi's laptop? Do they know where you are yet, or no? Do they not know where you are? Should I tell them? They don't know. So, well, no. The thing is, I just what I did is I just did one of those. Um, what do they call the thumb drive? Oh. So I just do that. And I hope you don't have any yeah, Lego still, sets there. I digress. Go on. No. <laughs> yeah. There's no Lego sets in your house. I'm looking through her old emails looking for her to say something like colored people after that was not acceptable. And, and then I'm going to tweet that out. 
or or like plans on going to confession, like emailing a priest. That would make me happy. Like if she's like, Father, are you free for confession on Thursday? I don't think you're gonna find anything. Actually, like that. um she does email I, I I don't know if I should release this here or this information, but she does confession via email to James Martin. So it's actually it's it, James does, Martin. Yeah, she just confesses things like, you know, I forgot to genuflect when I passed the picture. Uh, forgot to genuflect when I passed the statue of George Floyd the other day. But I'm getting old. And my you are getting too edgy, my friend. I'm sorry. I'll back down. I'll back the, down. You're getting. See, you so, live in it. You live in the deep, deep woods of Wisconsin, where you think you can say things like that <laughs> in public. All right. So go on. I sorry okay. for the digression. What What I was getting at though is that. Even in small town Wisconsin, there are too many people in here who wear I I have I own a MAGA hat. And the reason I got it, I got it actually just reflectively after seeing something like the umpteenth video of someone in a MAGA hat getting the tar beaten out of them in some city. And I got it and I said, I've got to get this because I want to be in solidarity with these people who are treated so mercilessly just for their political affiliation. So I got the MAGA hat. Now, I'm going grocery shopping the other day. I'm walking along, and this is a small town, Wisconsin, mind you. And this, in overalls with a long beard, as I'm passing him in the aisle, he leans in next to me real close and says, I like your hat. And I thought to myself, why is he whispering? This is ridiculous. He should be wearing his own hat. <laughs> you know what I mean? What? We need to stop accepting this narrative that are some sort of, an, you know, an endangered underclass that has no say in our own community. That's dangerous to comply with that. Um, that's and, a temptation we have to avoid. And we don't want anyone to belong in that class, right? Like, I don't want anyone. If, no. If I heard that there was an organization of Christian bakers persecuting people with same-sex attraction, I'm calling the organization for people with same-sex attraction that was founded to protect them from Christian bakers who were hurling stones at them but at the same time yeah. if i hear that there's powerful lobbies hurling stones at people who own christian bakeries because they won't do events that go against their faith i'm going to stand with those christian bakers and again that is like to yeah. me the, the genuine beautiful christian impulse which is to stand with those who are outcast um but what i have found I here in te texas and in, in my new experience being in a place like this with these values is there like genuine diversity is allowed to flourish. Like where I live in Hill country, you can go to a bar, which I have done a lot. And I see people with during the election time with MAGA hats. And I never saw anyone with uh, Biden stuff, but you'd see a Bernie guy with a Bernie hat or something yeah. and a Trump guy. Yeah. And they would be ribbing each other and they would be having good conversation. And they, and I think yeah. the sophisticated people look down their nose at the folks that we call rednecks or whatever as being unsophisticated bumpkins and they see themselves as being cosmopolitan and open-minded. But what I see here yeah. in the hill country of Texas is people sitting around drinking beer, playing darts that disagree on a whole host yep. of things are being very open about their disagreements, ribbing each other, laughing each other, high-fiving yeah, each other, exactly being right. human and these sophisticates, I, did I tell you about when I went to uh, a Second City, the very last week of Second City's existence? I think they're still closed. They, were, they closed because of COVID. I was in Chicago the day I went to the very last show before Second City closed. Second City, for those of you who don't know, is an improv group in Chicago where 
most of the great comedians of the of like from Saturday Night Live and other places came from. And so I went to Second City alone. I was in Chicago. I was so excited. I had, I go to comedy clubs everywhere I go. I had never been to Second City. It's historic. I was very excited to be there. And every skit was making fun of quote unquote rednecks and hillbillies. And I thought, interesting. They're making fun of a group of people they have never met in their life. They don't know, have never met, and they think they're being edgy. It's utterly absurd. It's insane. It's cruel. Yeah. It's unkind. Um, the best humor, as Bishop Fulton Sheen knew, is a great example of this, is always self-deprecating. Make fun of yourself. I love hearing Irish people right. tell Irish jokes, Polish people telling me Polish jokes, my Jewish friends telling me Jewish jokes. Those are very funny. Being self-deprecating is funny. And uh, making fun of a people you have no connection to, you've never even really met, is disgusting and gross. It is. It's disgusting, gross, and it's off-putting. And that's the great thing, though, is the ratings agree with you. So what people are downloading... We started out talking about the Tomorrow War. This is a massive hit. No, yeah. By the way, if you read the reviews at CNN or MSNBC or New York Times, they won't, they, won't, they won't recognize why it's a big hit. In fact, it's already getting a lot of negative grades from critics. No, I was reading the negative reviews. Do you think they know why they hate it, or is it just reflexive? Do they feel convicted? I think they must feel convicted. Well, they know Chris Pratt. A lot of them know Chris Pratt, and Chris Pratt is infuriatingly likable. Oh. And what I mean by that is he, in his, uh, in his social media posts, he has a way of presenting traditional or, I guess, what you might call conservative or, you know, standard American views in a way that's so matter-of-fact that it doesn't invite a debate. So he says things like, on Father's Day, because fathers are extremely important. I recently read a statistic that said that most children in America are overwhelmingly more influenced by female role models than by male ones. That's a problem. What are you going to do with that? It's edgy, but it's, you know, you just hear you say that and it's very, very edgy. It is, but the way he says it, it's like, what are you going to do? Get into a fight with Chris Pratt? On that? (laughs) And it's very clever. Very clever. Yeah. Right, because he doesn't go on. He doesn't give a bunch of arguments. He doesn't say, in this essay, I shall prove that despite what you might think, progressive, he doesn't say any of that. No name calling. As a matter of fact, I'm concerned about this. It's a problem. And, and he does that a lot. I think it makes people very uncomfortable. You've commented in the past that you think, I think, of yourself as being somewhat uncancelable. <laughs> I think Chris Pratt is similar to, to you in that regard. Well, I mean, I'm uncancelable because I'm a non-thing. Whereas Chris, you know, I have nothing to lose. Like I've just, I'm in my, you know, I make my own little movies, my own way. I write my articles, right? I don't, I'm an independent producer. Like somebody, and I'm small, potatoes. You can't, you can't cancel me. In fact, all they can do is give me a bigger platform by targeting me, right? Like I always say, you take a stumbling block, you turn it into a stepping stone. Unfortunately for my career, they, yeah. don't, they don't roll a lot of stumbling blocks at me. So no one's going to, people are always surprised, like, how do you say that and get away with it? I'm like, well, I think they're thoughtful enough to know to cancel me is that you can't cancel me. No, by the way, you can't cancel anyone. <laughs> My friends who are like, I'm being canceled. I'm like, you're being paused, you know, where you're, you're being, but don't worry about it. They're only going to make you bigger. If you're shameless, take everything they roll yeah, so, at you and, and stand on it. Take every stone they roll on you, jump out of the way like donkey Kong and stand on it and turn their stumbling blocks into stepping stones. 
Don't only me, you can cancel you yourself. Me. But Chris Pratt, they can make mm-hmm. his life like they did Gina Carano. They can make his life very hard. They can make it so he has to go from being an actor to an independent producer, which you know his career trajectory. Um, that would be you know falling from the top of the ladder all the way down to the bottom. Yeah, but guess what? Onlookers, as in the case of a Carano, uh, you know, when Carano lost her gig uh, at The Mandalorian, which was, by the way, a terrific show, um, and I'm a big fan of the director, but um, when she lost her gig at The Mandalorian, my first thought was, uh, why are they, they're basically, they are casting her as the heroine by, cast, by decasting her. By kicking her off the show, they made her into Luke Skywalker. And they are in the position of the power broker, the empire, that every especially young person instinctively knows to at least suspect that after the firing of Ferrano, they now openly oppose. And that's happening on a massive scale. All of the most popular commentators by now are, uh, are uh, Pratt-like. Uh, you know, if you look at the actual clicks and downloads and purchases, people love Jordan Peterson, uh, Tucker Carlson. Gina Carano is another example. Abigail Schreier. All of the people that are the most popular uh, among ordinary people are uh, are people who are just basically like, they're not even yelling at the left or whatever you want to call it, the establishment. They're just saying, nah, you're not, you're no, you're, you're not a problem to me. I'm going to go on being the way I am. <laughs> no, and I love them. No, and that's what makes them so beautiful to me. You know, whereas I had recently reached out to a friend to work on a film with me, and she's like, Jason, I've worked 40 years to build my career, I can't, I can't do this right now. I have too much to lose. And I said, yeah. not being a jerk, I, I was not being a jerk because I adore her and she's wonderful. I just said, listen, I 100% get it. I just have worked for 40 years to make sure I had nothing to lose. And what I meant by that is like, I don't have yeah. anything to lose, right? I don't have a name or a brand. But where she is, you know, I completely understand that. And she does good work in her way. And so, and it probably would be prudent for her not to like sit here and do this project that I would like her to do that put all of her other projects that are very beautiful and good oh, in, yeah. in jeopardy. But when you see someone like a, yeah. a Carano or a Chris Pratt, you just kind of have to step back and say, they know very well what they're doing. They know that they know the cost. Trust me. They have agents uh, and lawyers and friends breathing down their neck. And I bet the hardest part for them is that they probably do lose personal relationships. Um, in the industry, and I, I'm sure yeah. that's probably, uh, which I have, I have. So I think that that's probably for them the hardest part. That's a real, yeah, that's a real cost. It's not, I wouldn't trivialize it. Yeah. But yeah, and, and that's the thing too, Jason, you know, a local example of what we're talking about. Uh, so I live near a, a town called Columbus, Wisconsin. It was named after Christopher Columbus, the explorer, and prominently featured outside of the city was a statue of Columbus. Well, some impressionable high schooler uh, put together a petition saying Columbus was a horrible man who did nothing good, and we should take down the statue. Happened to be that her father was on the city council, and they very quickly voted to have the statue removed. Now, a few local people, Catholics as it happens, I know that's a huge coincidence. I don't know why that keeps happening on your show. Probably Italians. (laughs) Well, no, Germans mostly, I think. But... A bunch of these uh, uh, local Catholics, what did they do? They dug up the old statue, repainted it, and we put it on a float for the 4th of July parade. Oh, that's amazing. And what did that mean? It wasn't, we weren't saying, 
you know, screw you, let's have a fight. They were just saying, we barely noticed you. This is our town called Columbus. <laughs> this is our statue. You know what I mean? It, and, and I've talked to some people in my local community who worry, oh my gosh, am I getting so much trouble? And I'm like, dude, no one's going to camp. Even if you do get in trouble, right? It sounds hokey, but you'll be rewarded and you won't regret it. And you are Gina Carano. You're a movie. You're, you're an absolute star. And people, you, these people exist in your community. Another example, a buddy of mine, Joe Poshima, runs a bar real close to my house. When the lockdowns happened, he immediately calculated, this is going to destroy my business. And it's also making everyone depressed. Uh, I, you know, he's a, he's a mechanic. He works with a lot of working class people whose lives were torn apart by these mandates. And so he defied the lockdown. And he didn't do it secretly. He got a bunch of buddies. They did a motorcycle uh, train down to the Capitol. And he invited the media. And he said, I'm not closing down my bar. Now, he has taken flack for that. But he's Gina Carano. He's a superstar. So I go to him. I'm loyal to him. I'm going to, actually, I'm going to be running a series of open mics at his bar to make sure that he gets all the business he needs. Find these people. A stand-up comedy? Or, mu- uh, or well, music? That's what I've music yeah ah because i would come there i'm doing i'm doing i have i'm doing some stand-up so i would love to stand up too i would love to come there it's very politically incorrect you've you've heard some yeah, of my you you've heard some of there. it you've heard of it you've heard my you've heard my show i would love to come there and yeah. a lot of people listening don't know i do that so i would love to come there but um that would be awesome do come yeah, I would. And uh, well, and that I just saw a meme this week that said you all. It said all y'all walking around thinking you're Luke Skywalker and you're a stormtrooper. And yeah. and yeah. I think that's the point, right? And um, and why do we not kneel before the gods of the city? It's not for us. It's for our posterity. It's we want yeah. to shelter our posterity from the reckless and violent winds of the spirit of the age. And like this poor young person who thought they were doing something noble, which I'm sure they did. They thought, you know, if you know the history of the Columbus statues and naming things Columbus, it was to make Italians feel at home in America. Well, not only that, but as I wrote for my local group, you'll never find anyone more loyal to Columbus and his legacy than Mexicans during the 1920s. That's when after the revolution, the new secularist regime in Mexico outlawed the Knights of Columbus and their literature for standing against them. And countless Knights of Columbus, Mexicans, by the way, with more native blood than any of the great white campaigners against Columbus today are, have, these people, rather than abandon Columbus and his legacy, uh, face the firing squad. These are indigenous people with a lot of indigenous blood. So, yeah, it's nonsense. Yeah, it's silly. So um, I want to maybe close on this. Did you see the video? And this goes to tomorrow's, um, the Tomorrow War. And uh, we were talking about what I saw at Six Flags and woke culture robbing um, new immigrants. Have you seen the video that went viral of the young girl? I talked about it in my 4th of July special uh, from North Korea who fled across the Gobi Desert. Uh, I believe was forced into prostitution in China, eventually made it to the United States, and she's a student at Columbia. Did you see this video? No. Okay, and and you said you listened to my interview with Zmirak on 4th of July, but you didn't listen to my no, intro. I, 
I told yeah, I skipped your intro and just listened to uh, you. Yeah, that's horrible. Yeah, you've become you're getting eclipsed by your guests. <laughs> that's horrible. That's horrible. Okay, so anyway, when I talked about this video, this girl, so you missed it. You just missed out on everything there. So this this woman, she's at Columbia. She makes a video saying that woke culture is crazier than North Korea. And um, some young man, affluent white kid at Columbia, broke down crying because she, he said, didn't pro- use her, his proper pronoun, which was they, of all things, that she would never know what it was like to be marginalized. And so when I was at Six Flags, I had that bouncing in my mind, that video clip, which I had just seen in the special I just did, the show I just did was Mirac. And I had the thought that these young children wearing this, this will defend constitution shirts are going to have a love of this constitution, this country robbed from them. And then the Wilt Stillman movie, Metropolitan came to my mind. Have you ever seen that film? Uh, Yes. Do you remember the scene where they're talking? So for you guys, if you don't know, you need to see it. It's about debutante culture. I think it's in the late sixties or early seventies. I think, um, Not sure the time period, but I think it's around then. And it's debutante culture, kind of affluent white kids. And one of them says, they're talking about upward mobility. And they said, you know, but the problem with upward mobility in America is it's true. But what they never tell you about is downward mobility. And that Hmm. our parents did worse than their parents, and we will do worse than our parents. So as I was looking at this family thinking about this North Korean girl who's now being doxxed by woke white kids all across America. You know, I'm sure many of them had great Jesuit educations or went to diocesan Catholic high schools where they were taught not to see themselves as privileged and who should serve, um, but is vulnerable and or the officer core of the vulnerable uh, who gets to dictate their terms and command them around. Um, and it dawned on me that what, what is really going on with woke culture is it is a clever defense to shut down mobility upward and downward in America. And they cannot openly oppress new immigrants and minorities. But what they can do is just go, oh, poor you. Poor, poor you. This country hates you. Everywhere you look at structural racism, you never have a chance don't even try. Quit now. We'll fix the structures and all boats will rise. But for you, there's nothing you can do for yourself. What do you think of that? I think it's more damaging. Uh, look, there's, there's straight up abuse. We're all familiar with it. You know, villainous, cruel, you're worthless. Uh, I hate you you know, this unloving abuse that we see in a lot of movies, the sort of caricature of the cruel father is a very common trope in movies. I think we're facing something far worse, and I don't know what to do. I mean, it saddens me every time I think about it. I think that the latest couple of generations have faced to be a, 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 an, an opposite of that. And as we know from our ethics studies, the opposite of one evil is not a good, but actually another evil on the other polar end. And what, what a lot of people are facing, we've talked about this before, is what you're describing, this uh, don't, don't try, give up, is saying you should be satisfied <clears throat> with, with the uh, sating of your appetite. 
and you should not be inspired to rise uh, above. And there are no real the biggest problem arises. Well, I missed that. You said you, uh, what that did you are, what did you say about appetites? I didn't catch that. Stating your appetites is the purpose of life. Uh, 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 That's the purpose of life. That's to it. be the monsters in and, in the Tomorrow War. That's the purpose of life. Yeah, and, and by the way, everyone knows it's a lie. You can find online culture, by the way, which is, I, I've kind of dabbled and I look at. <laughs> you know, like online culture, and another uh, area you see it is in pop uh, music culture, is overtly calling out this lie constantly. Um, occasionally, it's good for meditation for meditating to switch to a channel that's playing club music, dance music. It sounds spunky, everyone's dancing, and there's lots of lights and stuff, but listen carefully to the lyrics. Almost every dance song is saying, I am miserable, I don't know what to do. A common theme is, I'm not going to think about tomorrow. All I can handle is tonight. Let's, let's give in to our appetites, give our bodies to one another, even though we'll never see each other again. Let's drink until we can't think straight. Let's do drugs. And it's mournful. It's not jubilant. A great example is Miley Cyrus's song where she says, we can't stop. The tune itself, my brother Bill pointed out to me, is that of a dirge. It's slow and ponderous. Uh, you know, we can't stop. It's almost like slow motion. It's miserable. <laughs> and online culture does the same thing. Very often from what they call incels, that incel culture. These are people who've been ruined. <laughs> you know, well, what's 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 in, what 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 what's incel culture? People who have grown to hate mostly it's men, young men who have grown to hate womankind for not sexually gratifying them. Uh, but in fact, <laughs> there's a reason they're getting turned down at the school dance. It's because they have never, you know, they they sit on their butts all the time. They fall apart physically, uh, and uh, they're addicted to uh, fast food and. and so, so you, uh, so Yanomi Park. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Yanomi Park, the young woman from North Korea who made this video that went viral. Not nearly as viral as one would hope. I shouldn't say it went viral. There were like thirty thousand downloads. Oh, that's not viral. Um, I think it's pretty profound to have a, a a woman from North Korea make a video that said you're all at our elite universities are crazier than uh, North Korea. But she said the problem with American kids is they have no problems. That's their problem. And so I was thinking about this young man. Could you imagine a young man looks uh, a woman in the face? A man looks a, a white man, looks a woman of color in the face. And this woman of color happened to flee North Korea. Her father's killed, suffered all sorts of indignities. Um, and he begins to cry because she, he doesn't use her pronouns, right? She speaks flawless English. It's, it was comical to me that a woman who is an immigrant who didn't get to this country till later in life, you're concerned about how she uses various parts of speeches. You should just sit back and be amazed at how beautiful her English is and go, great job. <laughs> Even if you're mad at Jason Jones for using your wrong pronoun, you'd be like, I forgive this woman. Wow, what a command of the English language. He, he resents her, and he thinks that she doesn't know what it's like to truly suffer and this is going to offend people, but I think this rich white kid with gender dysphoria is actually right. 
that he suffers more than this young woman. I believe he does. He actually suffers despair. He's his mm. first sexual relationships were probably with a computer. The same computer or phone that raised him because his parents weren't in his life. Think about that. Think about that. Um, that he has never known hunger. He has never Jim, uh, Jim Gaffigan does a skit where he's like, I haven't been hungry in 25 years. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. Right. I remember that. Yep. There's never been an itch that's never been scratched on this kid. And, and maybe, you know, his resentment is grounded in a reality that we have allowed a generation to suffer. Like running from a dictator trying to kill you is like normal human behavior, right? It's like, it is an experience that countless human beings have had in the history of the human family. As scary yeah. as, ter as, as the sheer terror, the sheer terror that you know me Park felt in different parts of her life the extreme loneliness and alienation of being trapped in the sex industry. And I hope I'm not getting this wrong, but I do believe she was forced into prostitution um, in Mongolia. I got to check this, uh, or before she escaped to Mongolia, I got to check this out. But, but um, the sheer terror, the fear, the loneliness, the alienation, these very deep, profound human emotions. But that is something that has been experienced quite often by human beings. Um, being raised by an electronic box is new having all of your sexual experiences or most of them or choosing your sexual partners through a phone at random uh, is new. And maybe they yeah. are right to say, yo, I've suffered a very unique kind of despair. You with your old fashioned running from dictators, trying to murder you and being forced into <laughs> sex slavery will never understand. Yeah. 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 yeah I can see it. Yeah, well, and the other thing is that the level of de dejectedness that they're experiencing, the despair that you're describing, it is worse in one sense, most unmistakably, which is that you can't solve it as easily. You can rescue a person who is literally in physical danger by removing them from the physical danger, right? Giving them a house and a gun, right? Giving them the, uh, the benefits of a, of a free and ruling society which is what we have here in the U.S. And that's great. But what do you do with a person who already lived in a free and ruling society, but in a culture that has added to the point where what you've described is the norm among a rising generation? It's harder to address their issue because it's purely internal. Which doesn't mean it's not real. It's just not external, if you know what I mean. And they'll never be able to articulate it, right? This young man, if you heard me describe him that way, would be offended and would never articulate his despair. He would never be able to understand the boundaries and causes of his suffering. You mm -hmm. would be, don't you think? Do you think that? Do you think they'd be incapable of understanding? I'm not sure. I think the artists, for some reason, do. Uh, a lot of very disturbed people, when they become artists, they sing and perform the truth. I, that's a side note, but I've noticed that. I and mean, people who are committed. Uh, to bad causes, an artist named Pink is an example, um, who is, she's terrific. But when she writes, she writes the truth. It's the weirdest thing. But maybe we should just get everyone to become artists. Maybe that'll help. Yeah, and I think your daughter agrees. What did she say? 
Oh, sorry, that's my boy. Oh, your son. <laughs> that's my boy, okay. Judge. Well, I, I, I said I'd take an hour of your time, and we did it an hour and two minutes. And I think your son's like, Papa, uh, I, I, you said one hour, Papa? <laughs> oh, no. What's he saying? He's just weeping at this point. He has this uh, this problem because I don't give him the despair you're talking about. Instead, yeah. I give him all these rules, and you know, I have all kinds of discipline and stuff. What rule is making him uh, cry? Making what rule? I think that is so profound that we're ending the show on the Tomorrow War with your son, who's yeah. going to save civilization, crying on the show. Why is he crying? What, what rule? What, what rule are you enforcing? He's crying for the same reason. Dan Forrester tears up in the movie we're talking about because okay. he knows his place. He's been given a solid, even at the young tender age of two, he's been given a solid understanding that he is a moral agent, okay. has a place in the world, and that there are high stakes. What he does matters. He can mess up and he has to achieve great things. And uh, he actually has to save the world. I've been telling him that <laughs> because I'm not going to do it. You he's know, simply to work. save his dad, he's going to be in Depends. In, in, in before <laughs> yeah. too long. No, but that, yeah, I mean, that, joking aside, that is, Dan Forrester, the main character of The Tomorrow War, is the opposite of the privileged uh, 20-something you're describing who confronted the the immigrant uh, girl. He's the opposite of that. The person who is not floating in a miasma, he's not looking inside himself for problems, he is forced into a situation where he says, you are man. You are father, you are son, you are husband. You have to do this stuff, fulfill these roles, and uh, do them. And, and by the way, everyone unmistakably loves it. Look at Chris Pratt in this role. This is who we all want to be, which is why, in my view, my theory, why I got so many downloads, why everyone streamed it, because everyone's longing to be that guy. Know and he's a very practical guy, right? He's a veteran. He is a hard sciences guy. He's not like... Uh you know, a social scientist or a humanitarian. Mm -hmm. And um, so just the creation of him as a hero was very unique. He's a very unique yeah. hero in today's day and age. And he's multidimensional yeah. and not stereotypical at all. So, you know, to read some of these critical reviews, you're like, wow, you guys are really clueless because it's very complex mm -hmm. and the characters have a lot of depth. and um, and it's really uncanny, and they're uncanny. And uh, for them to, I, I just don't know where this, the reaction is coming from some of the negative reviews from the critics. But like you said, what I love about Rotten Tomatoes is there's never been a film that has had 90% or more on Rotten Tomatoes I haven't liked. And there mm. probably hasn't been a film. And if the crit, if it's 90% uh, people and 2%, Critics, it's the best movie of all time, which I, you know. That's right, yeah. At one point, Little Boy, it might still be the case, the movie Little Boy, which I helped raise some of the financing for my friends made, in the movie Little Boy, it had the biggest disparity from critics to uh, audience ever. It was like 98% audience, 2% critics, and we were quite proud of that, <laughs> that huge disparity. Yeah, well, I you know, if we could rig something like that for the eventual inevitable social credit score system that the Biden administration gives us, that'd be great. Where we could have, you know, 
there's the federal Kamala Harris rating, but there's also the local community rating. And if you see the disparity, you know it's going to be a good person. Oh, that's genius. We need to fight for that subsidiarity. <laughs> that's a great idea. Well, Stephen, I need to sell pillows. Sounds good. Is there anything that you're prom- pushing or promoting or you got going on that you want to tell folks about before you uh, go hang out with your family? Well, hey, it's a long shot, but if you happen to live in my neck of the woods in Wisconsin, I'm going to be hosting an open mic on the 17th at Sixth Gear. So come on by there. I'm going to be playing. What's the name of the place? Sixth Gear is in the number six, T-H, Gear. That's brilliant. So Sixth Gear in, uh, what's the name of the town? Uh, it's in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. We're going to do an open mic. Talent is, you know, the woodwork. Because people are unhappy, and when people are unhappy, they write really good music. Well, I can tell you, all across Wisconsin, we have a lot of folks. We have this app that, like the the map lights up yellow where people are listening, and the brighter yellow it is, the yeah. more folks are listening. I don't know if you had that when you had your show before you quit because of your lack of fortitude and your thoughtlessness to your posterity. Yeah. But um, <laughs> Wisconsin is like big, bright yellow the whole state, and the this the, as you go from the edges of the state in, it gets brighter and brighter yellow more and more people listening oh my gosh wisconsin is amazing it is this is the this place is just peppered with saints Um, are you saying is that because of the is that because of the jason shown show having a large audience there is it that i make saints or that saints like my show no i'm saying that there are saints here and i'm gonna have to tell them about your shows i know they're not listening yet well no but it's a big (laughs) bright yellow the state do you know what just turned yellow this week what country just started lighting up yellow? The whole country? Russia. What's that? Welcome, Russia, to the Jason Jones Show. Thank you for colluding with, I mean, joining. <laughs> oh, no, I shouldn't have brought that up. I will say, for in my own defense, Russia's been one of the last countries. You know, like Iceland, we have a large audience, and all the Scandinavian countries. Um, I don't know why. Maybe because we look alike. Aloha, guys. And I love seeing... Um, Iceland and, 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 and Denmark and Finland and Sweden and Norway on all the folks listening there. And, but Russia just is the newest country to we really we have a, a growing audience. And, but Wisconsin, if the Jason Jones show were to have a heart, it would be the west side of Oahu where we're practically like local talk radio and um, we have so many listeners and Wisconsin. So I think we're going to get some people there at sixth gear. Oh, my gosh, that's awesome. But also, now we really are going to be competitors. When I start my show, if I ever do again, I've made it my aim to make it local. I'm going to cancel you. No, I clipped that thing you said about Nancy Pelosi kneeling before George Floyd, which I just want to say was repulsive and reprehensible for you to imply that woke culture is a new religion and they make um, deities out out of victims. For the fact that you said that is gross and repulsive, and I will clip that up. Yeah, well, and I, mean, I will be releasing will it as soon as your podcast comes out to make sure you are canceled swiftly. Well, I apologize <laughs> to the gods of woke for accusing them of being the heads of a new religion. I am heartily sorry uh, because I have offended thee. All right, we'll accept your apology. On behalf of all woke culture, we accept your apology. Well, you get to your, you, you. you get back to your family, and I have to pick my son up from swim class. I have to do my job as a father and pick my son up from swimming. All right. Well, All right. thank you very much for having me, Jason, and very good, very good luck to you with the pillows. 
All right. Hey, do you have a my pillow yet? Uh, uh, no. Okay. Mypillow.com. Use the code Jones. Steven, I am not kidding you. You know that um, my passion is martial arts, mixed martial arts. I'm not, I'm not talking about like Tai Chi in the park. I'm talking about young men who are trying to hurt me because it bothers them that an old guy is, is hanging in there with them and they're trying to hurt me. They're doing the best that they can to cause me pain and suffering. And when I come home at night, I've been bothered my whole adult life. I was a football player, an infantryman. And, and you know me, I do my hour a day of martial arts. And I have been bothered by neck and back pain. I'm not saying that my pillow cured my back pain. But what my pillow has been, it is, uh, it is the only pillow I've ever liked. I have never used pillows before. And you know me, Stephen. I'm not a guy that's going to. Slop. I'm not. I'm not. Since I'm not reading a script, they give me scripts. I don't even read the scripts. I'm. Yeah. I don't even know if they yeah. listen. If they listen, they'd probably be mad. I don't. Use, I do. I do I crazy don't. stories about my pillow. I love it. I love it. I'm glad. Yeah, I might be. I might be the perfect fit. You mentioned you don't use pillow. You didn't until my pillow. You didn't use pillow. Nope. I don't use pillows. I sleep. I sleep on the floor like a God bless American man with no pillows. And like a complete badass. Do you really so sleep on do. the floor? So maybe, do you sleep on the floor? Oftentimes. I do because, you know, I get uncomfortable in bed. <laughs> okay, so no, no. I sleep on a bed. I actually have a Tempur-Pedic bed because unlike you, I'm not, you know, a part of some weird cult that requires mortification or whatever you're doing there. I read Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. Um, no, what I, I love comfort. I just, pillows were never comfortable for me. They always hurt my neck. If I used a pillow, it would be just to cover my eyes from the light, from the sounds yeah. of one of my seven children pitter-pattering around. The, and, and I joked with the guys at, um, at Mudhouse. I'm like, I don't use pillows. I don't, how am I going to sell a pillow? They're like, well, give us your address. We're sending you all their products and just use them. And if you like them, let's, you know, uh, uh, you, they, can be, they can become your sponsor. So they sent me a huge. Wow, so you got, you got. You got the my pillow home gym. I got. The, I didn't know there was a home gym. Is there a home gym? <laughs> I want it. No, I got the. I got the. I got the the robe. Let's guys. I'm here to sell everything in my pillow. I don't wear robes. I'm never gonna wear a robe. But I got the robe. I got the slippers. I love the slippers, especially in this this past this cold cold Texas winter we had. Loved them. But my thing, my thing, is I want to be the face in the official. You know, what is it? Spokesperson forever for the, the, the mattress topper, the Giza Dream Sheets, and the pillow. Like, every home needs that. Just period. Period. In fact, it's a little embarrassing because we have a Tempur-Pedic bed. And we have the mattress topper. We use the mattress topper upstairs kind of for the kids in the big playroom. Um, but I will often go up there and sleep. It is more comfortable for me than the Tempur-Pedic. But the Tempur-Pedic bed costs me more than my first six cars combined. So we're using it. Um, but yeah, no, I got the Giza Dream sheets over the Tempur-Pedic bed with the MyPillow. And I actually use the pillow because I can I can push it down. And the code is Jones. I can push it down for the deep discounts. And it's perfect. And so now I actually use a pillow. And I have been doing going to a physical trainer to do rehab my back and my neck with the MyPillow. And I can say now that um, for the first time since uh, before I was in the infantry, I don't have neck pain in my, my lower back pain, which I don't think has anything to do with the pillow, is getting better. It's because of the physical therapy that I've been finally becoming disciplined on. Um, but to me, the pillow is the best investment. And those Giza Dream sheets, 
And uh, yeah, and the code is Jones, Stephen Harriet. All right, I will. All right, thanks for sticking around for the whole commercial. We'll talk later. Thank you very much. All right, later, brother. God bless. All right, guys. Um, yeah, I really want you to see that film, uh, but more importantly, I want you to support our sponsors. So go to movietomovement.com, check out all of our films. Are you not a monthly donor? You are not a month. If you are not a monthly donor to the Vulnerable People Project, you need to go to thegreatcampaign.org. We have donors that do from two to a thousand dollars a month right now. This podcast has become the biggest source of donors for the Vulnerable People Project. And what's amazing is we have donors from every corner of the world. We have several $2 donors. We did a $2 campaign. One of them is from Syria. Send me a beautiful note about how they want to stand shoulder to shoulder with me because I'm shoulder to shoulder with them. And that means the world to me. Uh, I founded this podcast to do one thing, to save the world so I could save my family. It's why I write my books. It's why I make my movies. My t- you know, David Mamet said he writes because his teeth itch. My teeth itch at the thought of fathers who have been placed in impossible situations where they cannot protect their, their families, their children from violence. That is why I founded my organization, the Human Rights Education and Relief Organization, and our two programs, which we operate through like separate brands because they do very distinct things. Same goal, protect the vulnerable from violence, two very distinct ways, movies and direct influence campaigns. But I really, my passion is to grow the Vulnerable People Project. The only way we can do that is through your support. You become a monthly donor at thegreatcampaign.org, and it means the world to me. And those $2 donors, I, I, no offense to my friends, and, and, and my largest donors are, are really my personal friends, and I know them, um, and I know it is a big sacrifice, but I know that my $2 donor in Syria is making the biggest sacrifice of all my donors. And so whatever you can do, it puts you on our list you get to know all that we're doing. I'm heading to Washington, D.C. next week where I'll be meeting with groups from all over the world uh, and, sh- and we're going to work together to make sure the interests of these vulnerable communities are being heard. From the child in the womb to the child in Darfur, uh, to families in Mongolia, to Chinese-occupied East Turkestan, to the Nuba Mountains, this is what we do. Uh, the Vulnerable People Project comes in, we run aggressive influence campaigns to defend the vulnerable, and you can be a part of it at the Great Campaign org, And if you do $20 or more, you get my book, uh, The Race to Save Our Century. It's a long show. It was a strange show. Nothing new. But uh, I'm off to my family. And uh, you've probably been on the Peloton. See, the longer I do these shows, the better in shape you get or the more weeds you've pulled from your garden. So I don't feel bad. Until next time, the Jason Jones Show. Aloha. This has been the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Ooh, 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 ooh.